I hired a specific WordPress developer who was way in excess of experience that I needed. But the funny thing is that leads to a good problem, which is how do I keep them interested? How do I keep them engaged? Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in-the-weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Hey, leaders, welcome back to another show. I am Ledge, and my guest today is Patrick Ward. Patrick, I always just have the guest, you know, introduce. I, I tend to talk to people who have too many current and present projects and activities on their LinkedIn. And, uh, you know, I love to have you focus and uh, introduce yourself in whichever way and through whichever project and lens that you like. I appreciate that, Ledge, and thanks for having me on the show. So my name is Patrick Ward. I am the VP of Marketing at Rootstrap, which is a custom software development agency based in Los Angeles. But as I often say, that means nothing to no one. So the thing I always tell people is we are the tech team behind Masterclass. So if you learned a Gordon Ramsay recipe during the pandemic, that was using our technology. Fantastic. I saw you guys also work with uh, Tony Robbins. So do, do you walk around on coals like in the office or anything? Or I guess at home now, right? So <laughs> We've had several people who've done the uh, Unleash the Power Within. Uh, yeah, we actually took his courses. At the time, he was selling them as CDs, like on physical discs, and we put that into an app for him. That was a, a really fun project for sure. Yeah, oh my gosh, they must have like so many cool uh, experiences with that. And you and I were talking off mic about uh, your role, you know, in marketing and just the way that you have thought about the evolution of that. I think that's that's very salient to me as a bottom of funnel person who, uh, you know, loves to see the changing and, and coalescing sort of commercial engine or the nature of how, you know, now we're not just sort of two teams, you know, kind of working together. Love to get into that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the way that I think about it is we're in three distinct periods of marketing. So the first period was this madman era that I call where you came up with creative ideas, you ran those campaigns, and if you spent a lot of money and it was wasted or whether it was successful, who cared? Like you just did that because that's what companies did. You just charge more later. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And once you hit the you know the 2000s and we started obviously having the rise of the internet and things were able to be measured suddenly we had a switch towards growth hacking and i came into the ecosystem at this point you know i had been at a number of different companies that were fairly b2c in my early career things like insurance things like real estate uh, all selling to a end buyer and because of that you know i was used to the the familiar metrics the vanity metrics of oh well we generated 10 million impressions this month does that matter who cares but as soon as you come into the world of tech marketing 
then suddenly it becomes, okay, can we measure every single thing down to a complete dollar value? And that to me didn't make a lot of sense either, because on the one hand, like, yes, you're keeping marketing accountable to some sort of metric that actually drives the business forward, such as pipeline or revenue, and that's great, but you're forgetting the fact that people don't go through a buyer's journey in the linear fashion that you think you can measure through digital mechanisms. And so suddenly we've got it to this stage where we are right now, where I think more people are starting to wake up to the fact that they need to bring personalization back into marketing and not personalization as in I have AI tools that are personalized to each buyer that I'm sending a message to, but actually thinking through how does my buyer want to interact with me and how can I deliver them the appropriate messages at the appropriate time. And so I coined this all together into a term that I called the marketing transformation mindset. Uh, and I turned it into a simple process because I was seeing that from my last three to four experiences, I was operating under those assumptions. I was still bringing forth that psychology element, that understanding people. At the same time, I was still reckoning with the idea that growth hacking wasn't going away. And the fundamentals behind it of making sure that marketing was accountable to results was still a good thing. Right, right. I have noticed that personalization is now moving up the funnel, you know, that you can in, in some ways do that correctly. And I, and I don't mean that, you know, send 100 million uh, invitations on LinkedIn with, uh, you know, dear first name. I noticed we went to the same college or, you know, whatever it is, or, you know, I sort of fill in the variables there. Personalization tends to be, if done right, something that if not, if if it isn't a one-to-one -one actual personal connection, then it really, really has to feel authentic. And um, when you work particularly in an industry that's, you know, sort of dominated by commodity types of experiences you you learn quickly that uh, you're up against being blown off you know i love the thing you said right away like you know who cares sort of what we do and you leaned right into a social proof type of example it isn't what we do as a, a set of features or services it's really about how those services and sort of values uh, project through for the benefit of that client. Yeah, absolutely. I think the thing here to recognize with personalization is there's there's a group of marketers that are doing it in a really poor way. And you alluded to one of them where people do the dear first name. I've now seen the next stage of that evolution where people say dear first name, ha ha ha, just kidding, Patrick. And it just feels cheesy. Like you uh, invoking the personalization, but at the same time, you're still not being personal to me. And so one tool that I want to give your listeners today, Ledge, is Crystal Nose. Crystal Nose is really a, a really good tool. It sits over the top of your LinkedIn, and it just gives you some psychological assessment of a particular prospect. Uh, the funny thing is, when I ran this tool on myself, it finds one of the most interesting pieces of information, which is says, always appreciates a sarcastic comment. And I think that is very interesting. If any of these people who reach out to me had looked at that, they would know 
Don't be facetious with him. Don't think you're being too cute or clever because he's going to call you on your bullshit and he's never going to speak to you again. And this is what I'm talking about. When you're talking about true personalization, you want to be focusing on how can I really get to know the person? Not how can I use a little trick? How can I use an image that has been Photoshopped to include uh, their website on a, on a blackboard or a whiteboard or something like that? You know, all of those tricks of personalization, maybe they work once. Maybe they work, you know, for a couple of times but they very quickly become stale and old. And it just, it doesn't serve you the same way as building a true, genuine relationship with the prospect so that they become not only a one-time customer, but a long-term customer. And this is something we always focus on. You know, again, the story I wanna share is about Masterclass, which we talked about earlier. When we started with Masterclass, we had one developer, one single developer there. We now have over 50. And that's because we started from day one focusing on how can we build a relationship with the largest proportion of the organization in totality. We know we built the relationship with the executives. We made sure we understood what the directors need. We understood what the day-to-day developer, you know, the, the folks on the front line, so to speak. That sort of work takes time. And it can't always be measured in some quick little quip of, oh, we got a slightly higher open rate here or slightly higher click rate. You need to truly understand the quantitative and the qualitative data you're getting when it comes to personalization, not what quick trick you can throw at your audience. You talked several times about psychology and how do you how do you model that or which sort of methods do you look at in, in order to understand, you know, that that disposition of you know what makes this person tick yeah the thing with a lot of psychology and that's at its fundamental it is still models and it is often guessing games uh you know there's been a whole bunch of academic literature that has slighted psychology as a pseudoscience and i would disagree I would say that while it is not a perfect academic practice, it certainly has fundamentals in understanding human behavior. And when you understand human behavior, you understand consumer behavior, because at the end of the day, we know this, whether it's B2C or B2B, it is still humans buying the product. We haven't got to the point that AI is selling to AI yet. We're not going to get there anytime soon. But that is the point. So you need to understand through a couple of frames of references. So there's a couple that I personally like. I like the DISC assessment, uh, particularly for technology companies, because it tends to identify uh, particularly the two biggest strains. So the DISC is dominant, influencer, conscientious, and steady. The steady type tends to be your technical developer type of crowd and your influencer tends to be your sales marketing and founder type of crowd so that assessment's really good at understanding the dynamics specifically in a b2b company Uh, aside from that there's also another one called the enneagram institute which is a really holistic view as to how people get motivated what drives them what doesn't drive them and that i really like from a more holistic standpoint of understanding, okay, why does this person even want to speak to me in the first place? Uh, How can I write a message that is 
you know, compelling enough so that they understand that, you know, I am coming to the table with good intentions. Those sorts of frameworks are really important, especially as a marketer, because when you're focusing on how you can grow not only your company, but also your career, you need to understand some of these fundamental truths. That's the thing that I've realized most over my career is that it's not because I've become slightly better at SEO. It's not because I've mastered this social media platform's algorithm. It's because I've understood some of the core fundamental truths better and better about who humans are at their core. And that's what drives the results that I look to achieve not only for myself, but for the companies I represent. When you can do that, that's when you really start to hit the accelerator on your career as opposed to spinning your wheels. I mean, marketers do this all the time. We chase the shiny object. We think, oh, well, now let's get on Clubhouse. I remember when that happened a a year ago and now who's on Clubhouse, right? It's the wrong thing. You're chasing the tool. You're chasing the short-term tactic rather than how can I develop my understanding, develop my holistic strategies. So, okay, DISC and Enneagram. taken both and you know but i don't hang that out to the rest of the world to consume so how do you get that information and understanding from the prospect you don't actually facilitate them spending the time to take the tool right not at all not at all and this is where you're going to have to look at certain tells you can have tools like crystal nose augment some of your knowledge but at the same time you're going to have to get very good at understanding people and this comes back to doing your own miniature psychoanalysis because let's be honest you don't have to get it perfect from day one certainly with a prospect you know, it is going to be an evolving relationship over time, right? Is that you just need to understand enough about that person in that initial instance to understand, hey, what are the themes here that I can latch onto? Maybe I start finding in a particular prospect that, hey, this engineering persona type really likes to respond to a message that's put in this way or this marketing persona responds to a message in this way. And so you can start to build those general trends where it is still personalized, but it is not ultra personalized. Because we've seen the other flip side of this, where you go for personalization at all costs, suddenly it gets too creepy, right? So one of the things that I notice that happens all the time is when people reach out to me and start talking about the Pittsburgh Steelers. And that's because I know they've found one of my oldest social media profiles that says that I am a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. And they've looped it back in around to an email and LinkedIn campaign, which I have got nothing about my Steelers fandom on that. And so that just feels a little too forced, right? I think you still need to understand the basic fundamentals of a human relationship, which is you know, you start as acquaintances, hopefully you develop to being good friends, maybe even best of friends. Now, I'm not saying that as, you know, you're going to become best friends with all your clients, but at least deepening that relationship over time, letting it organically happen. When you focus on that as your mentality, that is when you're going to start seeing the most results. Because at the end of the day, what are we in the business of, especially in B2B tech? We're not saving lives more often than not, we're just selling software. And so we're selling software to help them accomplish a goal. You know, we want them to 
grow revenue or for the particular person who's our point of contact, we're hoping they get a, a promotion or a raise or, or at the very least get to keep their job, you know, all the other mechanisms of why we're even selling this particular service or solution in the first place. But we need to focus in on that it really isn't that complicated, right? We still need to get back to those sort of fundamentals when we're building out uh, how we're going to interact and engage as opposed to trying to ultra get it down to, oh, well, if I do this sequence and I use this AI to write the copy and I feed them you know, this video feed and make sure I understand everything about their third born child, like, no, you don't need to go that far in that earlier stage. Just act like a human. <laughs> Just, right, right. I'm sure your sales folks down at the bottom of the funnel appreciate not being handed people that, you know, sort of feel creeped out. <laughs> well, this, this happens all the time where sales likes to see that the person they're speaking to when they're spending their time, you know, salespeople spend a lot of time trying to push deals through, particularly, you know, at our stage. You know, the thing I always tell people is our minimum is $150,000. There are not a lot of people on this planet who can write a check for $150,000 today. And so knowing that, really your job as a marketer is how can I serve the best possible prospects for sales so that they're not wasting their time spinning their wheels? And the funny thing is, when you come with that level of transparency to a client, they appreciate it too. A classic story that I like to say here is uh, we were working with the Chelsea Handler team. Uh, they wanted to build an app. Uh, we'd scoped it out. It was going to be $250,000. But through that scoping process, we figured out actually, you guys don't need an app. You actually only need, you know, a small two-page website. And they were very appreciative of that. They gave us a lot of referral business as a result. Now, could we have sold that $250,000 app? Absolutely. They were ready to buy. But more importantly, we realized, hey, that's not the solution these guys need right now. And as long as you're adopting that care, you didn't put the sales team in a difficult position when they try and upsell them to, you know, yearly long maintenance and create a tenacious relationship. And equally, you respect the client by only giving them what they need at the point in time that they need it. So if at some point in the future, they do have a holistic strategy that requires the incorporation of a mobile app, they will, of course, be coming to us first and foremost. But there's no point in overselling something to someone even if you think it makes yourself a quick buck. Because I can tell you time and time again, the most profitable relationships are the ones that last years. Right, absolutely. Yeah, being someone that, you know, all my entire sales career has been B2B services, uh, five years in the staffing and development space. So I, I, know, I know what you're talking about there and you know, marketing services, consulting, professional services, there are so many opportunities to tell people this is really not the thing you should be doing. Like you came to the doctor and you have a need, but the prescription you gave yourself or read about on some blog is wrong. And no, that's not what I'm willing to sell you. And if you're so built into what you want to be doing, there are actually other people who would be happy to steal from you. And 
you know, I think there's a, there's a trust that comes from, if there's anything authentic, it's that it's just, you know, I, I don't want to take your money today because I think that's the wrong thing to do. And, um, I've leaned on that. And I'll also say that over the course of time, you know, it just takes a very long time to develop. So you have that uh, relationship over time, which is fantastic and exactly what you want, that trusted advisor. Like I'll call that guy no matter what, just to find out who they're going to refer to me. And when you're up against, you know, the run runway problem or the cash problem of, you know, just like I need something in the bank. You know, it's, it's tough from a business standpoint to walk away from cash. Have, how have you y'all dealt with that? Well, it's it's funny you say that because, again, I know we're all sick of hearing of the pandemic, but at least there is a lesson here for dealing with the crisis. So in the midst of 2020, uh, obviously, we had a number of clients either slow down their engagements or delay payment terms. And so that left us in a bit of a hole, particularly because we were trying to keep the lights on when it came to making sure we were not going to fire a single person from our team. Now, we managed to do that. The initial step we took was cutting extraneous software costs, which you'd be surprised um, how many you can find. I mean, we found we were paying for five different prospecting tools that all did basically the same thing. Well, you can consolidate those. But then when it came to around September time, we were still facing those cash flow problems. And we took a client, I won't name them, realistically who we shouldn't have. And the funny thing was, we took it under that guise of, you know what, maybe it just gives, you know, the 20 people we have on the bench, on the bench is a developer term for folks who are not billing to a client. And we took those 20 people on the bench and put them on this project, thinking that, well, if we don't make any money from this client, like I guess at least our developers were still sharpening their sword, so to speak. Well, they certainly did that and they produced a really uh, interesting app that was you know, really functional, very helpful. I will say though, that client has consistently created problems for us since. They have been very delayed in their payment uh, to the point that we even had to take it to, to court and once again, that reiterated to all of us that those are the types of clients that if you can avoid, they are just absolutely not worth the risk. Now, it is interesting, I will say, that because we didn't need the money from them, uh, so to speak, it was more about can we just keep our developers occupied, that was beneficial to us because any money that we did get from that client perceived or the perception at least was that we were winning but it is interesting if you're talking about you know full driving towards profitability growth uh, I mean the second that 2021 or 2020 turned into 2021 we offloaded that client uh, very quickly in favor of other clients that were immediately starting to increase because of course like why wouldn't you so it is tough I do sympathize with that because you're right, Ledge. Sometimes you do just have to take a hit and you have to choose the lesser of two evils because, you know, we're all in business, right? And particularly when those crises hit, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's an economic downturn, you do what you can to make sure the business survives. But needless to say, if you can pivot yourself so that you're in a position to thrive sooner rather than later, 
then hopefully you don't have to make as many of those uh, you know, false equivalence bets, shall we say. Right. And it's a great point for anybody listening that this happens to mature businesses at times of crisis. It happens at the beginning of a business because everything's a crisis and you're two weeks from being broke. And so, you know, you take on anything that'll pay the bills. And I don't fault people for that. I just try to advise, you know, from the experience seat that, you know, I earned my bald head and gray beard. And, you know, I can tell you that those people will take it out of you and you're going to have a, you know, a relatively miserable time, but you do have to you know, try to kick the, like we call it the dumpster fire, you know, kick it down the road, you know, a little bit and, and book, book the next deal. We quite literally have built cash flow models where the, the Google sheet actually inserts a picture of the dumpster fire, at which point the, uh, the cash flow would turn negative. So, you know, and it's nice when that goes from, you know, 10 days to six months, uh, but, but you earn your keep on the way there. So, but I love that point that, you know, this stuff happens later in a business too. You know, you may be 10 X the size, a hundred X the size, but you also have, you know, a relatively linear or at least stepwise function relative to the, the cost of doing business. So, uh, percentage wise, you know, dollars still uh, are in and out at the relatively uh, similar gross margin. And that happens to service businesses all the time. Yeah. And I think there's a quick lesson here for particularly marketing leaders, but anyone who's in a function that perhaps isn't as used to being part of driving the full growth. You know, I've, I've grown up through the marketing being perceived as a cost center, being perceived as the party people or people who who make things look pretty. I can tell you, if you're looking to really accelerate your career uh, in those sorts of fields that don't traditionally get the credit, like sales or even like engineering, that is the single greatest thing you can do for your career. Be a part of those conversations of how do we keep the business afloat? Because at the end of the day, a business is trying to do one or two things. They're either trying to survive in a crisis or they're trying to grow rapidly. That's pretty standard for most businesses, especially here in the United States. And so if you're a part of that conversation, how are we talking about the business? What are the roadblocks to success for our business rather than your particular function? That's when not only you get a lot more clout and respect as being part of that executive team, but you're showing yourself that I'm not just focusing on my world in a silo. I'm thinking about how does my marketing affect the sales uh, uh, team in terms of the quality of leads they field. And then sales is thinking about how do the clients that I put through the door affect my delivery function? You know, are the engineers happy to work on this work? Is operations able to provide the support that delivery needs in order to be successful? Is that helping the account managers upsell the client to an additional engagement and then telling the right stories that feeds all the way back around to marketing that they get to tell? And so once you start thinking about it in those terms, it's not saying that you're not going to be doing your core job because that's obviously your expertise and what you're paid to do. But as soon as you start thinking in those terms and embracing that way of looking at a business, that's when you really start to, to see some real traction. And I, I can say this from personal experience. I was 
really surprised at how quickly I started to grow in my career once I adopted that mindset and started to see the business for what it was, rather than being, you know, obsessively compulsive about just the marketing function. Sure. Yeah, I, I like that. The, just thinking about, you know, I, I am not a practitioner or a technician that exists just in this seat. And, uh, you know, I'm a I'm just a I'm a revenue guy, you know, revenue number one, right? Like there is just simply no other reason that we exist in this business other than to make a, a holistic system that works together and generates money. And that sounds kind of bloodthirsty, you know, from the standpoint of of sales. But, you know, when you think about it, like we're all just really part of a revenue function that's how we get paid and, you know, growth or no growth. I mean, there's some, there's some businesses that don't, you know, want to grow. They're happy with where they're at. They're sort of on the treadmill, but that's not going to allow you to continue to evolve either because you don't have that additional uh, added cash flow to, you know, essentially invest in internal, external R and D you will become stagnant and, you know, not be, relevant because you you can't invest in learning and developing new um, approaches or staying up on the, the state of the art or learning to avoid clubhouse, you know, what have you. And um, I think that it's important as business leaders to then figure out how do we help folks who are not weaned onto the business function to just, you know, appreciate, understand, speak. It's a different language. It's just in the same way that I can no longer speak code. It's hard to teach and learn, you know, it's just like this, these sets of vocabulary, like it's just a totally different thing to, to be able to sit and talk to the whole business that way at every function. You talked about how marketing kind of had to learn that, you know, it's no longer just about our technical numbers. Uh, how do you do that training or, you know, can embrace that business mindset for everybody else? Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because this was actually a direct byproduct of growth for myself. So when I came on to Rootstrap, I was the first marketing hire. They didn't have any marketing prior to me. It was all fairly outbound. It was a few relationships from founders. And so I came in and built their marketing practice. First and foremost, revenue function. Obviously, for the first couple of, uh, you know, I would say maybe six to 12 months was building the support for sales. Can we get enough leads in the door so that all our sales reps are busy? And of course, once that had happened, it evolved one step further. We were thinking, how can marketing support the rest of the business? And so what we did was build a specific internal communications function. And what this allowed us to do is exactly what you're talking about. Build those connections with different parts of the business. And because we had been forced to learn, you know, the true fundamentals of the business, because let's be honest, people prior to us were basically just sales and the finance function were the only two uh, departments really focused on, on the health of the business. But because we as marketers had learned that, we decided to tap into our skill set, i.e. being good communicators, and share that with the rest of the team through this internal communications function. So suddenly we were able to have conversations with operations like, okay, we've got this much coming in the pipeline. They're probably about you know a quarter to two quarters out. Like, where do you need support on 
you know, recruiting and mobilizing enough developers and resources for those client engagements. Uh, similarly, I think one of our best successes was really communicating strongly with our developers. Now, our developers have always had a really strong idea of what clients they want to work with and what clients they don't want to work with. And that I have an enormous amount of respect for. But one of the things that I think they didn't understand prior to us engaging with them was where a client even comes from. And you and I, Ledge, know this too well, is that a client does not just fall from the sky, right? It is a, a series of messaging. It is long-term campaigns, uh, particularly when you're trying to drive any sort of inbound action. And if you're trying to drive outbound action, I mean, good luck getting higher than a, a percent or 2% reply rate. So given that, by spending time with workshops that we designed specifically for those developers, suddenly it did two things. One, it helped them understand actually how the business grows, how people come and find us. And two, it got them excited about helping with that effort. Suddenly they started coming up with initiatives saying, well, why don't we have our Ruby developers go and speak at Rails conference? And why don't we have our React developers go and speak at ReactCon? And they were mobilizing their team to do what they can to spread the word about our company so that they could get more of the client projects that they wanted to work on. These are the types of things that can happen when you really show people why they should care about the business. Because I loved your point that not every company looks to grow, but when you do grow, suddenly you can accomplish more. And not just to accomplish more as an entire company, but for each individual, suddenly they get to achieve more of their professional goals, more of their personal goals. You know, maybe they, maybe that developer was, you know, a little bit shy, but wanted to speak at a conference, wanted to have the resources and the support to go and speak at that conference. Well, when you have the growth, when you have the funds and the resources in order to help them do that, suddenly they're feeling more inspired. And for myself, I saw this first and foremost. You know, I came on board and up until this point, I had been a pretty solid individual contributor type of marketer. You know, I was good at dealing with agencies, cobbling together a system uh, to put together those resources in order to achieve a marketing goal. That was all fine. The one thing that I was missing in my career at that time when I joined Rootstrap was really managing a team. So I took a chance. I came on board as that first marketer. But by driving that growth, as of last week, I made my 12th marketing hire. And so now I'm managing a team in the double digits. That is the type of potential and what can happen for yourself when you help supercharge that growth engine. And so it's been really pleasing to see that not only has growth been embraced by the traditional functions, the sales and finance, of course, they have to embrace it, but by other parts of the business. And I might add, this is really interesting for the company Rootstrap that I'm part of right now, because it's not common. Down south, which is where most of our developers are based, uh, Uruguay and Argentina and Colombia are our three biggest countries, it is not common for fast-growing companies to exist. There's a few of them, like Mercado Libre, which is the Amazon of South America. But other than that, most of them tend to fall into what you mentioned earlier, Ledge, of those companies that 
you know, they, they get some level of growth and then they just sit at that level because they're kind of happy. But what I'm really proud of is we've been able to show uh, the rest of the company that, hey, growth is not something to be afraid of. Actually, it is a massive benefit and it allows us to provide each individual in the company with more support, more resources to allow them to accomplish whatever they want to set their mind to. That's a really interesting view on on growth. I don't hear that a lot. And uh, I'm the marketer and brander and you, you know, comes through and you're able to essentially take a message and, you know, change it and make it compelling to the audience. Right. I, I um, also applaud the, you know, internal Marcom development, you know, from almost a bootstrap type of perspective, because you you only see mega companies, you know, sort of go, oh, Marcom's a thing now, you know, we should have internal communications, you know, kind of as well. It makes a lot of sense to me the way that it that you framed it up there. It feels a little bit like a, a learning and development type of of function, which uh, usually is, you know, uh, sent to the the dark basement of HR. And just has that shaped up differently for you? I I would certainly say that this internal communications function does work very closely with HR. I think the reason that it was attributed to us rather than HR is that really HR was swamped. They were swamped with two major functions. People care. You know, we are a 290-person business now. When I joined, we were at 70. So that's quite a a number of people to add in terms of... uh, looking after their their mental health and their well-being at work. And then the other function was recruiting. Again, the other byproduct of growth, particularly for ourselves being a services business, is you need more people to do the work. So recruiting was going to be a, a key component of that. And I think it was just an acknowledgement that communications as a, as a function does tend to sit best within marketers uh, because, you know, we spend all the you know, every waking moment of our days thinking of how we can communicate with clients. And so it's very easy to then take that same mindset and that same mentality and then adopt it towards, okay, let's think about our internal clients. How can we help engineering think of the business better? How can we help operations? How can we help HR design product, all these different areas? And then I think the the next step that we took that was really easy to your point that large companies, we took someone from one of those large companies. Specifically, I hired a communication specialist from Cognizant. Uh, Cognizant, for those who don't know, is a, I believe it's a $16 billion information technology company. So they're really large. And that's one thing that I was never afraid of. Uh, a lot of other people say, well, why are you getting someone from a large company, are they going to be worried about coming to one, you know, let's be honest, we're only 15 million, you know, it's relatively small by the the scale of our industry, you know, we're still very proud, we're obviously a lot bigger than, you know, zero to one million folks, but we're still relatively small. And I was not worried about that, because what I thought was, this is going to provide people with ownership. And sure enough, that internal communications uh, specialist that I hired, has now been able to build out an entire practice area under her. She was not able to do that at Cognizant because she was a small cog in the machine. And so this comes back to how do you motivate people? And I think there's a little side lesson here that I'll go on a little tangent with, is that don't be afraid of hiring the most experienced people. 
Um, I think a lot of people tend to fall into the trap of thinking like, oh, well, if I hire someone smarter than me, maybe they're going to take my job. And this doesn't happen. I've done this time and time again. I hired a content person who's better at content. I hired the comms person who's better at comms. I've hired a director of paid search who knows way more about paid search than I ever will know. And then specifically, one of the most proud ones I have is a developer. I hired a specific WordPress developer who was way in excess of experience that I needed. But the funny thing is that leads to a good problem which is how do I keep them interested? How do I keep them engaged? Because when you hire someone who is that much more experienced, they bring so many more ideas and it doesn't rely on you as the manager to be the bottleneck. Because if you're the one who is the smartest person in the room, suddenly all the problems are coming to you. When you're not, suddenly you're able to empower those different employees to do the work that they specifically are the best at. Yeah, I love that. And I think there's something to be said there about experience as a collection of ideas and having seen different things, almost like a diversity type of idea, uh, which is different than when startups very often fall into the trap of hire a CEO from industry because now we're big and we should learn how to act like a big company or there's some type of idea there. And you see it time and time again, where it's just like, that's not this company. That isn't the application of experience. That's the application of a potentially inappropriate model because, you know, you read uh, an article in Inc or something, you know, and, and I, I think that's fundamentally different how you applied that. I couldn't agree more, Ledge. The first two primary people as I was building my marketing department that I hired, both of them had no technology experience. And they have proven over the course of my career, I've hired you know, a range of different people. They have proven to be two of my absolute best hires. And I think that's by no coincidence. I think it has happened because like what you said, they understood what we were trying to build. They brought an appropriate mindset and life experience, a diversity of life experience, and that I was able to teach my uh, philosophies and they were able to embrace them. And this is something that I'm always constantly aware of. I never want to get into an echo chamber where suddenly my department feels like they all have to subscribe to exactly what I say. I want them to be challenging me. And this is one of the beautiful things about it is that it is diverse by its very nature. I know we were talking before offline about this idea of asynchronous leadership. My team is across four different continents and that makes it really interesting because you get all these different cultural expectations, you get all these different life experiences, you know, everyone from I have one who is just out of college all the way up to a dad in his mid forties, right? Like a full diversity of. I know that guy. Yeah. <laughs> a full diversity of thought and experience, and all of that comes together with you know a fundamental uh, nature of respect and of creativity that suddenly you're able to accomplish so much more as a team than, like you say, if you're looking at 
oh, well, let's just clone this company because like we want to be them. It's like, no, that's not how you do it. You are a company and you have your own identity. So build people towards that identity, and those level of beliefs, those core values. And that's when you really start to fly. Fantastic insights. Patrick, I said at the beginning, I always, I like to ask the guests before we wrap, put on your futurist hat, you know, what's, what's going to matter and what should the, the B2B professionals who are listening be thinking about over the next couple of years? So this one's going to be very close to home as working in two technology companies that have done a lot of exciting work in the space, and that's machine learning and artificial intelligence, specifically not to worry about it because every marketer, as well as many other professionals, look at AI as something that is going to take their job. And the key thing to think about here is how it's going to augment your job. Specifically for marketers, we have had to take an uplift of a lot of number crunching, a lot of data entry, a lot of these types of uh, tactics, skills, strategies, what have you, that let's be honest, are not really our bread and butter, right? We're not, you know, I myself have had to learn how to speak the world of numbers, make sure that I can communicate effectively to finance, but I'll be the first to say I'm not particularly good with Excel. Now, this is where AI is really going to help you. It's going to take that monotony. It's going to take those uh, hard parts of pattern recognition and data entry and really crunch that so that it's not a big part of your day. If you are a marketer or any other function, you want to be looking at what are the human-only elements to your job. You want to be looking at where am I providing creativity? Where am I providing innovation? Where am I doing the true work of knowledge work. Being in B2B, most of us are in knowledge work of some capacity. And what AI is going to provide to you over the next, I would say, two to five years is a way that you can do the more interesting work of your job every single day rather than have to sweat on you know, entering that information into a CRM or making sure that uh, the latest spreadsheet that you report to your executives is up to date. That's the, going to be the power of it. So do not fear. It is not going to be taking your job. Again, I, I'll leave you here with a story. We had these robots in a previous company that were all AI-based. They were wandering around uh, the office. They would always get stuck at the edge of carpets or under stairwells because they'd think they'd reached the edge of a cliff. You know, the AI is not that smart yet. It's not gonna it's not gonna take over the world anytime soon, but it is gonna help you do your job a lot better. Excellent. I love that. I love that. Great. I haven't heard that one uh, come up again uh, recently. So uh, do not do not fear the deep minds. So <laughs> Patrick, if anybody resonates with uh, what you said or wants to reach out to you, what are the particular channels to do that on? You can either visit uh, my company's website, www.rootstrap.com, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn, linkedin.com slash IN slash Patrick James Ward. Spoken like a communications marketer. He's got the whole thing laid out there. I like that. Patrick, thank you for hanging out. Really cool insights. You've got my brain working uh, far too much for a Monday, so I'm going to have to just cut you off there. So, But thanks so much for coming out and, you know, really appreciate it. Thanks, Ledge.
Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.